Welcome to the fourth episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, roughly, we brave Room 106, the house of pain that contains all the new planning information from recent weeks, and extract the key things you need to know. But this time, we're courageously returning after just a week to compensate for the three-week gap before the last edition. That's right. Do you want to explain this week why we called the podcast Room 106? Okay. Well, it's a reference to Room 101, the chamber in George Orwell's novel 1984, that contains a prisoner's deepest fears. We're suggesting that, for ourselves and for some of our audience, the weekly grappling with new planning information can be a bit like having to go into Room 101. But maybe that's just us. And it's called Room 106 instead of Room 101, in honour of the sometimes tortuous Section 106 negotiations that take place when councils are trying to agree how much developers should pay for infrastructure to mitigate the impact of their schemes. So, coming up, the key news stories of the past fortnight and why they might be important for you. We explore concerns raised in Parliament about whether the MPPF is fit for purpose in terms of Greenbelt protection. We also look at a local authority's rejection of a 1,100 home Homes England scheme due to the lack of provision of a link road. And in the deep dive section, we'll be talking to Joey Gardner, our special correspondent, about how planning authorities and developers can meet their new legal duty to boost biodiversity. By the end of the show, you should have enough topical planning information at your fingertips to make any social anxiety about Christmas parties a thing of the past. Hmm, if you say so. Anyway, I think it's time to bite the bullet. Shall we go in? I guess so. Well, here we are again in room 106, the vault which gathers all new planning information, including every last indecipherably named PDF in the deepest recesses of the most obscure District Council website. It's forbidding. Yes, but at least this week there's only seven days' worth to get through. Good point. So, what stood out for you in the last week? Well, the first story that I've picked out is a a House of Commons debate that was initiated by a Lib Dem MP on the Hertfordshire Greenbelt following a contentious appeal decision. And in the debate, Daisy Cooper, the Liberal Democrat MP for St Albans, criticised the Greenbelt protection policies in the latest version of the National Planning Policy Framework simply not fit for purpose following this appeal decision. Tell us a bit more about the appeal decision. What was the verdict and tell us a little bit about the issues. The inspector allowed 100 homes on an unallocated Greenbelt site in the MP's constituency near the village of Colney Heath. So the appeal site straddles the boundary of St Albans and Wellin Hatfield districts. Wellin Hatfield had formally refused the plans and St Albans hadn't actually determined them but would have resolved that it would have refused them if it had. And it was seen as a very significant appeal decision due to the fact that it was both on Greenbelt and it was a site that wasn't allocated in either council's local plan. As our readers will know, the bar is set very high for Greenbelt developments. Most of it is deemed inappropriate and can only be allowed if it meets very special circumstances. So you asked about the inspector's reasoning So the key issue was the level of housing need in the area. So the inspector gave very substantial weight to the provision of market and affordable housing in the area. 
And she said the area had uh, acute need and delivery shortages. And she found that this outweighed the harm to the Greenbelt. She said that both councils were unable to demonstrate a five-year housing land supply, as is required in national policy. She went further and said that the land supply position of both councils was a bleak one, and the shortfall in both local authorities is considerable and significant. So strong words. Why did the MP think that it... it, She felt that this, this kind of highlighted a specific problem in the MPPF, as I understand it. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the way in which she thinks this this highlights a problem in the MPPF and planning guidance? Yes. So, as I said, the key issue in the decision was the weight given to um, housing need and the level of housing need in the area in justifying these Greenbelt homes. And in the debate, the MP quoted directly from the inspector's report where it referred to a written ministerial statement back in December 2015 And in the MP's words, this uh, written statement indicates that unmet need is unlikely to clearly outweigh harm to Greenbelt and any other harm, so as to establish very special circumstances. But the MP said that the inspector then included what she called this critical line. And the inspector said that the provision from this uh, written statement has not been incorporated within the MPPF, which has subsequently been updated, and similar guidance within planning practice guidance has been removed. I can therefore see no reason to give this anything other than little weight as a material consideration. So the MPPF was first published in 2012, and then it was revised in July 2018, alongside a raft of other changes to the government's planning practice guidance. And then the MPPF was updated again in February 2019. Uh, So the MP asked the housing minister, Christopher Pincher, if he accepted the planning inspector's conclusion that this provision to protect the Greenbelt has not been incorporated in the updated MPPF, as well as the planning practice guidance. And she said, if the minister does accept these findings from the planning inspector, I would be grateful to hear whether the government intends to rectify the situation. Just to be clear, there's been this written ministerial statement since 2015, which people opposing any kind of development on Greenbelt sites have been able to brandish, which basically says that uh, housing need will rarely trump Greenbelt as a consideration in a, in a planning decision. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, that's right. I think the way it's been interpreted is that, from my experience, is that unmet housing need on its own would not outweigh harm to Greenbelt. Um, since, the, I mean, in the aftermath of that, there are other decisions where housing need had to be alongside other very special circumstances to justify Greenbelt development. But what you have here in this decision is housing need on its own being acute enough to justify Greenbelt development. And the inspector has justified giving that priority, I guess, to housing need on the basis of the fact that she says there's nothing in the updated version of the MPPF or recent guidance that basically repeats what the government said in their ministerial statement of 2015. Yes, that's right. And she's asked the housing minister whether he he agrees that is the the case. She described the MPPF, the latest MPPF, as simply not fit for purpose of protecting our precious Greenbelt land. And she said it must be updated without further delay and new guidance issued to the planning inspector. How did the minister respond? Well, in the debate, the minister didn't actually address the inspector's comments that were quoted by Cooper. He said he would take away the specific items raised and respond to her more fully. He then went on to say that the challenge for local authorities was to get an up-to-date plan in place. 
So Pincher said the key issue here was that both councils lacked an up-to-date local plan. And he, he went on to make this interesting quote. He said, we might say that in the land of no plan, the local housing need number is king. If there is no set number in up-to-date local plan, it's quite possible for developers to submit speculative applications to local authorities. The authorities may choose to turn them down. If they have no number in their plan, the local housing need number is the default that the planning spectrum will look at. And then he, he then went on to say, it's incumbent on local authorities that wish to protect their communities and avoid speculative development to get up-to-date plans in place. And he pointed out that St Albans Council has not had an up-to-date plan since 1994. And he told the MP that he would encourage her authority to put that plan in place to protect her community from speculative development. So many of our readers will know that St Albans has had a lot of trouble getting an up-to-date local plan in place. Its draft plans have failed examination a couple of times and um, it's even launched a couple of legal challenges against the inspector's uh, conclusions, but to, to no avail. We then asked Daisy Cooper's office whether she had um, had any update from the um, the government on the specific points she raised, and they said they were still waiting to hear. Okay, okay, interesting. So, I mean, I guess that is the usual line from government, isn't it, in these situations, which is to say, not unreasonably, local authorities need to get a local plan in place. But that doesn't really address the question which the MP is raising, which is, you, the government, once had a very clear position that housing need on its own shouldn't trump Greenbelt, and you're not making that position clear in the MPPF and guidance. But, you know, are you going to do something about it? And we're yet to hear whether or not they're going to do anything about it, I guess. Yes, that's right. So we do know that the government is keen to update the MPPF again to meet its uh, net zero climate change goals. And it'll be interesting to see whether they revise it on this particular point to retain that previous strong protection for Greenbelt land. And of course, a lot of our audience will probably be saying that a bit of a slight degree of ambiguity over Greenbelt protection is, is not a bad thing, given that our latest consultancy market report shows that 83% of consultants agree with the phrase that Greenbelt uh, policy currently imposes undue constraints on development and, and should be reviewed. And I guess um, a lot of people would say, well, given that uh, the majority of consultants work comes from the private sector, they would be pro a relaxation in Greenbelt policy, wouldn't they? Nonetheless, there is a very widespread feeling in the sector, not only amongst developers, that Greenbelt policy is um, too much of a, a sort of sacred cow in terms of planning policy. Yes, that's right. And I think particularly there's a the sense it puts undue pressure on councils, both officers and members, when they are, um, the responsibility lies with them to release Greenbelt lands to meet their housing need. And many people in the sector, public and private sector, both would argue this up to the government to maybe look at that at a national level. Fantastic. Anything else this week? I mean, I'm conscious that we're looking at a shorter period, so maybe not as many big stories for this podcast as before, but is there anything else that stands out? Yes, well, there's an interesting story that we published last week about a, a council that refused plans from house builder Taylor Wimpy and the government's housing delivery agency for 1,100 homes on an allocated greenfield site. And this was refused due to concerns about the applicant's failure to provide a link road to support the development. What's notable about this is that one of the co-applicants was Homes England, the government agency that typically works with council to deliver more homes rather than a private developer. And in addition, it was a site allocated in the local plan, 
which means it's you usually expect to be far more likely to be received favourably by the local authority. So what exactly were the developers proposing? So Taylor Wimpy and Homes England submitted two outline applications to South Ribble Borough Council in Lancashire. The first application was for a uh, housing-led development, mixed-use development of up to 920 homes. And the second was for um, another residential development of up to 180 homes. Uh, and both of them involved um, supporting infrastructure. What was the council's reason for refusal? I mean, sorry, we know it was to do with the link road, but just in, in a bit more detail. Yeah, so even though it was an allocated site, the, the planning officers of the council concluded that the delivery of the cross-borough link road through the development sites was a key piece of infrastructure needed to support the development. But they said that both applications failed to provide a firm commitment to its delivery. So their report for the council's planning committee said the proposals failed to meet local policy requirements in terms of the provision of the link road as well as failing to provide an agreed comprehensive master plan for the um, the wider allocated area. Uh, following the decision, that the council's leader, Paul Foster, also issued a strongly worded statement on this. And he said, this administration is pro-development, but only where it is appropriate for our local communities and our environment. He said, these proposals lack the sufficient detail and the long-standing serious concerns of residents, councillors and other stakeholders have, not been, have simply not been addressed to any degree of satisfaction. As a result, members have no choice but to unanimously refuse the plans. He went to say that developers cannot ride roughshod through the heart of our communities and nor will we ever let them. So strong words there. Stirring words. Mm. Um, But, I mean, this is exactly the sort of thing that Michael Gove has, uh, in in front of the select committee in early November, he said that, that he wants to have a planning system where people can feel confident that the money will be there to support infrastructure. Uh, presumably to support new housing schemes such as this. And so this would almost seem to be an example of exactly the sort of problem where uh, there is a site allocated for housing in the local plan, but that's dependent on adequate infrastructure in the form of a link road being provided. And yet the applicants, and, and I'm, I, 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 if, I'm, if I'm misunderstanding the case, then, um, then I'm sure uh, people will say, but but the uh, the applicant doesn't then provide the link road on which this this allocation was um, was conditional, and therefore you know there's no permission, there's no new housing. I mean, is it clear why Homes England and Taylor Wimpy didn't provide the um, the link road in, in in this instance? Well, it it comes down to a difference of opinion between the applicants and the council as to whether they had actually provided this in the plans. So. The officer's report said the applicant submitted a master plan as part of the application and it shows visually how a link road could be provided through the site. They said the, the applicant's planning statement said that they, they're they proposing to construct a spine road through the land, which would be at the developer's expense. But the, the county council's highways team raised concerns that this master plan doesn't demonstrate the delivery of the infrastructure necessary to support the scale of development proposed. And they said that these the proposals for this spine road didn't meet the council's local planning policies on this. And they said that the the policy requires a link road to be completed in its entirety within the plan period. And they said that what was being proposed just didn't meet this. But the applicants are saying that they think that they what they're proposed in terms of this spine road does meet the local planning policies. And they said they've been working closely with the council and the local community. They're disappointed with the refusal of their plans 
and they intend to continue their dialogue with the council to identify the next steps and bring forward a scheme that will create a thriving local community. Okay, okay. So it's not black and white on whether or not the link road is going to be provided that the developer thinks it's put forward a, a clear plan to include and uh, and implement a, a link road, but the council says it doesn't see the certainty that it would, would like to see in terms of the delivery of this road. Yes, that's right. As ever with many um, things in planning, it's not black and white. There's clearly a difference of opinion between the council and Homes England and Taylor Wimpy as to whether the link road proposals that they put forward meet local policy requirements. Fantastic. Will be an interesting one to follow. Yeah. John, thank you very much. I, I, am I right to think that is the um, that, that that's the sort of news highlights of the, of the past of the past seven days? Yes, that's right. Brilliant. Well, I need to go off and uh, talk to somebody about about biodiversity net gain, which is our deep dive topic for this week. But I will see you later to talk about your quirky story of the week. Okay, see you then. See you then. So one thing that we've yet to really grapple with in depth on Room 106 is the Environment Act. So I need to find somebody who can help us understand what that really means for our audience. And I'm looking into the depths of Room 106 and I think I can see in the distance there's a, there's a huge mound of paper which that strikes me as the, what the Environment Act might look like in this environment. So I'm just going to pick my way over there and I think I can see hunched over next to it, sort of flicking through the pages, is a familiar figure. In fact, Joey, it's Joey Gardner, our special correspondent. Joey, how are you? Very well, very well, Richard. Although slightly struggling with this mound of paper. Legislation is always the real challenge, isn't it? But people seem pretty interested in the Environment Act. It's likely, as I understand it, to have quite a major practical effect in terms of what's required of planning authorities, what's required of developers. You wrote a feature for us that appeared on the front of the quarterly print edition. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about what the Environment Act requires of developers and planning authorities with regard to biodiversity net gain? Well, quite simply, the Act requires uh, a biodiversity net gain on any development site of 10%. Now, under the Act, that can be delivered either on site or off site using an an offsetting scheme or potentially nationally via strategic habitats. There are a couple of targeted exemptions, such as for brownfield land, etc. But the top line number that you need to remember is the 10% biodiversity net gain. Okay. And is that something completely new? So is that requiring developers to provide something that at the moment they simply just don't do? Not at all, actually. In England, we already have policy in the MPPF, which encourages the use of biodiversity net gain policies, but doesn't require it of them. A number of local authorities are requiring this of developers, and increasingly developers are familiar and familiarising themselves with this concept. Okay, so the situation at the moment is that some local authorities already require it, some developers already provide it, but the difference is from November 2023, everybody will have to provide 10%. Exactly. You raise an important point there. The Act doesn't come into, or this stipulation under the Act doesn't come into effect immediately. There's a two-year grace period under which the government is going to provide 
further details in terms of the exact regulations under which the system will be operated. But at the moment, that date in 2023 is when it will move into being a mandatory system. Whatever your local plan policy says, you will have to provide 10% biodiversity net gain on every planning permission that goes through. You sort of think it's going to be quite a demanding extra requirement to put on developers. Are they worried about it? Some developers are, but a lot of developers are actually attempting to be, I guess, proactive about this and taking this in and making this part of their business. What about local authorities? Are they concerned by this? Uh, Local authorities are alternately concerned and enthusiastic, I think. It probably depends who who, who you speak to. Certainly, since being part of national policy, this has been taken up by a number of authorities, well, a large number of authorities already. There were a small group of pilot authorities, but according to research released this summer, around two-thirds have put in place some form of policy around biodiversity. You're saying the concern is about how planning authorities making decisions, how when they make a development management decision, whether they're in a they're going to be in a position to be able to accurately assess the likelihood of genuine biodiversity, genuine ten percent biodiversity net gain being delivered. From talking to the people in the sector, clearly there are issues on the at the very basic level of in advance of the act coming into force of how enforceable local authority policies around biodiversity net gain are if they refuse an application on the basis of the application not delivering sufficient net gain, whether or not that will be subject to legal challenge. The case law on it is broadly supportive, but there are some question marks about it. In a much broader sense, The concern around the policy, I think, from local authorities is that they support the outcome, but they're worried they don't have the ability to assess robustly the claims of of net gain, biodiversity net gain being made by the developers making the applications. Okay, so there's a a question about whether authorities have got the sort of technical expertise to, um, uh, to, to assess... Uh, what developers are proposing. Any other reasons why um, people might be concerned that the the this what sounds like a fantastic policy of making sure that development actually leads to biodiversity gain, why it might not be delivered? There are lots of concerns about why the biodiversity itself may not be delivered. Aside from the lack of availability of local authority ecologists, there are also concerns about the robustness of the metric itself the the extent to which the the metric is is objective um say for example it seems quite difficult for the assessments by even trained ecologists of the condition of existing sites to be repeated when you ask a, a separate ecologist to do do a um assessment of the same site they often come up with a completely different answer which would suggest that uh, um, it's not clear whether these things are being uh, are going to be delivered in the way that people are, are expecting. There are also limitations on um, on on-site delivery. It's, it seems unclear whether they will actually be delivered in practice. There are concerns about the cost of off-site delivery and, and really how that whole system will function. And then the absolute final thing, there's a concern as to whether 
these additional costs potentially could impact um, supply of, of housing and schemes coming through if they erode the margins that landowners or developers can expect to gain from their land. Did you get a chance to look at the, the key factors that that maybe you know w- will um, will dictate whether or not biodiversity net gain is delivered? The, the things that um, developers and councils can can do to help ensure genuine biodiversity net gain is delivered. Well, I think the principal concern comes down to local authority ecologist resource. You know, if you don't have someone in-house or or someone at least available that you can go to 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 assess a, a, a developer's application and work out whether it you know has any relation to the real world, whether it has any chance of any prospect of actually being implemented, then this is never really going to get off the ground. So that's probably the first thing that you can do as a local authority. Jerry, thank you very much. Is there anything else before we wrap up and I, I head back into the uh, some of the other dark corners of Room 106? I think it really comes down to this, this question of resources and the effort to which local authorities go to ensure that they're assessing the information that comes in from developers. I mean, this is fundamentally a system in which it is down to the developer to come up with a solution to provide the biodiversity net gain. The council doesn't have direct control. So the council's point of influence is in its assessment of the developers. And if it doesn't have that uh, ecological expertise, then that assessment won't happen. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Joey. It's certainly something that's going to be very interesting to follow over the next couple of years. And let's hope that we do, you know, we do genuinely get to a place where new development is seen to have uh, genuine biodiversity benefits. Great. Good to speak to you, Richard. But can I leave you to make your own way out of Room 106? Well, um, I'm not sure I can see the exit from where I am, but I will, I will try. Right, now to find John again so he can select his reader's choice. Oh, there he is. Hi, John. Hi, Richard. So which is which which is the sort of quirky story that's that's caught your eye this week? So last week, Southwark Council in South London approved proposals to demolish and replace an entire 85-home development just nine years after its completion due to its poor construction. Gosh, nine years. That that seems an extraordinarily short period. Yes, it does, doesn't it? So, so what happened is the council um, granted a, a developer, Henley Homes, permission to demolish this 85-home scheme called Solomon's Passage, and it was built between 2009 and 2012. And it will be replaced by a new build development of 91 homes across four buildings. And according to the council officer's report, two of the original blocks in Solomon's Passage had experienced what they called significant structural issues and survey defects. And intrusive surveys of the buildings found many instances of poor construction. Nine years is, is such a short period of time. Was there any agonising in the in this officer's report evident about the the impact, you know, the, the sort of um, the embodied carbon implications of demolishing a a scheme and starting again? Yes, yes, there certainly was. Planners, like everyone else, are increasingly concerned about carbon emissions. 
this was certainly something that the officers addressed in their reports. They conceded that the proposal to demolish buildings that are only less than 10 years old is not a sustainable form of development. And increasingly, we've seen with some government decisions recently about how the level of carbon emissions involved in construction is is becoming a planning consideration. So our readers will probably remember a decision a few weeks ago by the Secretary of State to refuse permission for the um, Tulip Tower in the City of London, which was this um, uh, skyscraper visitor attraction. And one of the reasons, one of the very... Novel reasons for refusal was the level of carbon emissions that would be involved in constructing this huge new tower on the site of an existing building. And um, the the minister who refused the scheme said the um, uh, the little weight, little thought had been given to how the building would operate over its, its extended lifetime and no consideration of how it would function beyond life as a viewing tower, which counted heavily against it. And some people saw that as a signal that concerns about carbon emitted during construction is permeating into UK planning policy. And that decision came just days after the um, COP26 climate change conference in Glasgow, which some people saw that as significant timing. Okay, thanks very much, John. Well, I think our work is done for another episode. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Phew! That's another week summarised. Yes, we'll be back after Christmas to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins and our quarterly print magazine, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Thanks to producer Ade Bambala at Rethink Audio. Thanks for listening and Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. Goodbye. Bye now.